my name is Jillian Adler. I teach medieval literature mainly, but I actually teach from uh, Latin antiquity up until Milton, which we were which we are studying today. Um, I'm in the literature group, and my book is, it has a, a the, the first half of the title is, is Middle English, so it's all a thing hath tema, time and medieval life. For the Sarah Lawrence Library, I'm Tim Kale, and this is the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. For today's episode, we're joined by SLC faculty member Jillian Adler for a delightful conversation about her new book. In this episode, I ask her questions for the first 30 minutes of the conversation, and then we transition into questions from two of Jillian's students, Aiden and Demi. Before we go any further, I encourage you to give the podcast a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. These reviews are essential to us climbing the podcast ranks and finding our audience. You can connect with us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, remember to visit the library website at sarahlawrence.edu library for any of the many services we offer, including booking a consultation and using our sewing machine. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions that you'd rather not share over social media, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this episode finds you well and that you share it with your friends and colleagues. Now let's begin. So how did you develop the idea for this book, combining concepts of time with your knowledge of medieval history? I was finishing my my first book, uh, which came out last year, called Chaucer and the Ethics of Time, which is a study of time in uh, the consciousness of Chaucer's characters, um, as well as time in narrative form in Chaucer's poetry. I was, I was working on that, which was building on and substantially revising my PhD dissertation um, when I gave a talk that was related to the book, but actually not uh, ending up being a, a chapter in the book, um, at a, a conference, the Biennial London Chaucer Conference. It was one summer in London, you know, a few years after I received my PhD. And um, the, the, my co-writer, Paul Strom, uh, was in the audience, and I was sort of talking about his work. And afterward, he, he sat me down. We realized that he had read a chapter of my dissertation when I was in graduate school. And he said, do you want to come to teach, I'm teaching a Chaucer seminar at NYU and the, the graduate school um, in the fall. Do you want, would you like to come and give a class? And I ended up giving a, a, a class on time in Troilus and Crusade. Um, there's, there's this moment, if you're familiar with the poem, but even with the Troy story, Troy is, is, is falling, really, and there's a love story between the two uh, eponymous protagonist, Troilus and Crusade. And Crusade has had to leave the city of Troy and has made a, a pact with, with Troilus saying she'll come back in a certain amount of time. Troilus is sort of heartbroken, wandering around Troy, and he's, he's rummaging through his memory, looking, he's kind of reviving moments um, in their courtship. 
some of which never really happened. <laughs> so he, he's kind of fabricating and, and memory is a, a kind of fluid thing. Um, so we were talking about this moment and the idea of, of memory and time in Troilus. And Paul and I came up with, with the idea to pitch a book about time in medieval life that really integrated these literary moments with the broader history of time. I think time has started to gain focus as, as its own subject. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's always been the focus of historians, but there's actually a kind of history of time. Time has its own cultural history, especially now. I'm, I'm, I'm about to be editing a volume of the cultural history of time in the Middle Ages, so um, it, it's of increasing interest, I think. Anyway, so Paul and I started uh, this proposal to, to write a book that would integrate manuscript images and images of sculptures and um, really evoking the world of medieval time in all its multiplicity, to, to quote Mustafa earlier, right? You, you gave such a wonderful introduction to the book, actually, and thinking about the varieties of temporal experience. Um, so we, we started collaborating, signed our contract right when uh, the pandemic hit. <laughs> and, and so ended up uh, transatlantically because Paul's in Oxford um, writing this book and collaborating. That's a great story. So the year is 2023, as far as we know. Um, how do you manage your time? Do you use clocks, <laughs> calendars? Um, do you use clocks, calendars, planners, all of the above, or something more obscure? I, uh, I, haven't, I haven't mastered that one. <laughs> um, it's funny, because Chaucer wrote a treatise on the astrolabe which he dedicates to his 10-year-old son, but clearly the material is so above what it, unless his 10-year-old was extremely precocious, um, more <laughs> precocious maybe than the, the, uh, <laughs> the learned folk of, of Oxford and Cambridge at the time. But no, I, I do use clocks and calendars. Um, <laughs> I, is there something a little more yeah. like that? I feel like, for example, light, sunlight, is something that we take for granted it's indicative of what time of day it is. So I feel like, like for example, if I wake up at seven without checking my clock, sometimes I just feel that it's seven. Right. Does what I just said resonate with uh, you? No, way? absolutely. And I, I think that actually gets at one of the important distinctions of the book, which is between how we gauge time and measure time, um, timekeeping, and which we often can't escape, right? And then the sensation of time passing, the experience or perception of time, what you know, we could call time consciousness. Um, to, go, to go back to your question of managing time, because I, I think it relates to your point, uh, I'm, I'm, I live a very a highly structured day. Um, I have to, I mean, if, if, if you talk about 2023 and I think of everything that's happened since January, um, I use, I have my master calendar and then I have daily to-do lists and then I keep notifications in my phone. I have post-its all over the house. <laughs> so it's very structured because if I, if I didn't keep track of time, I wouldn't get to my next class or my next meeting and we all have a lot to balance. But every morning I wake up quite early and I take my dog Hunter to Central Park and that time is his. So I actually, I put, I put technology away. I put the clock away. And the thing with Hunter is, well, he's 10 years old now. So that's 70 in human years. And, um, and so he walks slowly. 
And I can't be impatient and rush him and say, well, I have, we have to count the minutes and, and, and move. I have to put time away and abandon it and kind of go by light in a way and move back to this sort of agricultural time. <laughs> but he's, he's also a nonlinear walker. So um, <laughs> he's especially now, you know, springtime, like everything in Central Park is blooming and he's going, sometimes he's going backwards and zigzagging, moving. And so I, I actually go based on space. We have like two particular walks we take and, and, and we're usually back in time, right? In time for my structured day to begin. But it's, it's a wonderful experience to be able to kind of abandon it for that set period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, to that point, how has doing research for this book and writing this book influenced your own perception of time? Has it changed since before? Yeah, I, I've wanted it to, um, because one of the one of the reasons that I started thinking about time is um, it had to do with my anxiety about time passing. You know, um, I, when I started working on on the the first project, which is inevitably connected to the second, I was living in Los Angeles and finishing my PhD there, and I was always stuck in traffic. And so I would you know, watch the hours pass and I, I'd become really anxious, how am I going to get everything done? So I was hoping that by turning to the literature of the Middle Ages, I'd find you know, this, this is a period that's it's a treasury of moral and spiritual values. Um, it's a, it's a, a period where people care a lot about, I mean, it's a period when saints are the celebrities. They're, the, the writers from Boethius to Chaucer and Dante, they're interested in, in what gives life significance and permanence and um, the way in which living a, a virtuous life, um, developing a moral character can help us live with more stability. So there's an interest, and it seems paradoxical, in living deeply and living stably. And I say it's paradoxical because when we live deeply, we experience emotion. We 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 have a, a, a we're kind of grounded in time, in the world, and experience. Um, and stability, it seems like in many medieval texts, is gained by transcendence, by moving away from time, and and putting oneself in God or letting God inhabit oneself. Um, what was I saying? No, you, so, you answered it. Okay. Yeah. No, you got there. Okay. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very curious to know, what's your writing process? Do you write at the same time of day for a set number of hours, or is your process more fluid? It, it, you know, it really varies. I think with this book, because it was collaborative, we, I mean, we were working on this around the clock, and, and Paul was in Oxford again, I was in New York, so we had a time difference. Um, I was waking up earlier to communicate with him, but we were also in a period when, you know, I was teaching remotely for most of the time I was writing. And, I mean, time just sh shifted, right? The way that we experience uh, and, and mark the passage of the day, it, it, it was... Um, it was sort of challenged and, and overthrown completely. So um, we, would, we would kind of start work individually on a particular chapter. You know, I might work on the allegories of time and he might work on the end of time chapter. And then we'd, 
we'd send the chapter drafts, the first drafts to, to each other. And I'd make additions and emendations, and he would do the same. And eventually, I mean, the, the concern of the editor originally was how, how do you have a collaborative project that, that is seamless, right? Where, where the, the writing style, you know, you can't tell whose voice is, is whose. It's not like an edited collection where you have a different author for each chapter, and it's recognized as such. Um, but I think we really achieved it. At least, you know, there, there are, we, we did a book launch uh, in London last, last month, and um, some of the writers who knew Paul's work well uh, were saying they couldn't tell whose voice was whose, which was a major compliment to me, because <laughs> Paul has written about Chaucer and other subjects um, related to the Middle Ages, and he was, he was actually the, the Tolkien professor at Oxford, and he's taught at Columbia, so he, he's, he's written a bit more than, than I have, um, and it was a learning experience. Yeah. That's all, well, uh, I'm really curious about the pr that process of collaborative writing on a project like this. It, what are some of the upsides to it, and what are some of the downsides to it? Well, when you're, you know, I had a really good experience, because Paul and I are both highly structured people, and, and we were quickly sending things back, and materials back and forth. Um, I imagine that with someone who pro procrastinates a bit more, it would be really frustrating for me. Uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad it was Paul. Um, I think one of, we, we had different strengths. Um, I, I actually did a lot of the investigating of, of images, and so one of the things that I had learned from teaching at Sarah Lawrence during the pandemic was how to navigate all of these digital manuscript databases. I mean, thousands and thousands of medieval manuscripts, right? Manuscripts are books written by hand, so they were written by scribes. Um, they were put online and, and made available, accessible through databases like the British Library, the Morgan Library. So during the pandemic, when I was giving, giving lectures, I was showing a lot of images, and students were able to actually give presentations on manuscripts this way. And so when we were thinking about the images for the book, I already had this, this storehouse, um, to use St. Augustine's word, um, of, of, of images that I was able to draw on. Um, I thought that was an advantage. You know, for me in particular, I learned so much about the muse museum archives, like what, what's there, and, and how do we engage our, our reader visually with material to complement the, the literary scenes and the historical. That's great. So what's the closest medieval equivalent to what we're all doing right now? In, in, we're doing an interview podcast for an audience in a library. Mm. What would the medieval equivalent be? Well, the, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is um, the university setting, right? The, the, the earliest universities were medieval, and we talk about kind of debunking the idea, the myth of, of uh, the, the Dark Ages. Um, in ten, the late 11th century, the University of Bologna has developed as a university collecting different colleges and different disciplines. Um, the next universities were in Paris and Oxford and Cambridge and Glasgow, and, and they were popping up all over Europe. And you had sort of formal examinations. <laughs> Not that this feels like a formal examination. <laughs> um, but, but kind of uh, to, to get your degree, you would have, you would have the, the different um, 
uh, instructors of, of disciplines in what was known as the trivium and the quadrivium, which made up the liberal arts system in the medieval universities. So, so maybe that is an equivalent. All right, great. Yeah. Do you feel that you've established a healthy work-life balance? <laughs> uh, to put that question another way, and maybe a more interesting way, is do you feel you've established a healthy relationship with time? <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay, so th this, this is a good question, because I think it relates back to, to, to the point where I, I, I forgot what I was saying earlier. Um, one of the medieval writers I was most drawn to as an undergraduate that made me read everything else differently was Boethius, who wrote The Consolation of Philosophy, The Consolatio Philosophiae, um, and he wrote it 523-524 AD when he was awaiting his execution. And it's a, it's a dialogue with Lady Philosophy, who's an allegory of, of wisdom, who descends from the heavens, and he's there weeping in his in his prison cell, uh, he's been accused of, of treason, and um, he's, he's bewailing the fact that he's lost everything, of course, but he, he was so good on earth, and, and why is it that when we're good, you know, the, the wheel of fortune continues to turn, and change is, is unchangeable, it's, it's a constant, and, and wh why does that happen? How is, how is that just? Um, in a world that's overseen by uh, divine providence. And Boethius's dialogue with Lady Philosophy draws out this, this discussion of free will and fortune and, and the fact that we can't escape mutability so long as we're in time. So I think Boethius's ultimate lesson, and of course the, the ending is provisional, we don't, we don't see him gain transcendence, but there's a sense that we can actually step outside the wheel when we cultivate a, a sort of self-possession in the face of change, and when we achieve an, an inner stability and an interior freedom as well. So um, that's, that's one answer to the question, is that I, I was really drawn to Boethius. I wanted to actually adopt Boethian principles for myself. That means that I wanted to be able to resist all of the difficulties and the torments that come with change. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when you're um, in a ha happy state and that's taken away from you because Lady Fortune is blindfolded and she doesn't care. She's, she's arbitrarily turning the wheel. I wanted to be able to find, and this is where, you know, right now I'm actually interested in transcendence and not just time, but there's a medieval sense that on the other side of time is eternity. You can kind of rely on this this, this immutable, un, unchangeable, boundless love. Um, and that is separate from you know, Lady Fortune's constant change. My last question for you, uh, before we turn things over to Demi and Aiden. Um, how do you stay in the present and really get the most out of an experience? How do you make it so that time doesn't just pass you by? Mm. I really think that animals help with that. I agree. Um, and I think that finding, finding out what your passion is and immersing yourself, you lose, you lose time. I mean, I, in addition to, to writing and learning, and I, I should say that I'm, I'm learning all the time, right, in terms of, you know, how do I kind of remove myself from time? I, 
I, um, when, I'm, when I travel and I love to travel, I'm always looking for the medieval past, right? I'm always looking for uh, Gothic and Romanesque cathedrals and, and other, other relics. And um, I'm learning from my colleagues. I'm, I'm learning from, from reading. Um, but you know, outside of that, I find that I bake a lot. And baking is, is extremely technical. Um, I have a scale in my kitchen, and I measure everything, and and I have to time things properly, right? I make the French macaron, and I have to <laughs> let them <laughs> let the batter sit for 45 minutes before I can bake them for a very particular amount of time, and it depends on the oven. And you would think that paying so much attention to the precision of time would make you more anxious, but in fact, with baking, it it, it forces me to stop thinking about. Or, or having that same anxiety about time passage. And the same as I've started gardening, which really, I, I can't look at my clock because my hands are covered in soil. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. That's end of part one. Now part two. Hello, Demi. Um, so I have a question um, about Julian of Norwich, who I was lucky enough to study with you in conference. Um, and Julian, for you all who don't know, is an anchoress and mystic of the Middle Ages, um, and you devote a whole section of your book to her. Um, and I always read her revelations as being inspired by um, the illness she experienced and, and that sort of suffering. Um, I think suffering can create an experience of elongated time. Um, when, when we're in pain, times can seem to move slower. And I always imagined this as sort of perforating Julian's reality in a way that, that Christ's time stepped through and she experienced eternity. Um, and then I read the conclusion of your book, um, which, uh, inspired by Frank Kermode, I believe, um, talked about creation as a tick and doom or the end of time as a talk and, and that life was lived in between. And um, you wrote about how the existence of an end shapes the middle. And I realized that this could suggest that it's not just suffering that's the impetus of Julian's revelations, uh, but mortality or her own intimacy with her own end. Um, and then the realization that it is a beginning. <laughs> um, and I, 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 I know suffering and mortality are intertwined, but I also think that shifting the conversation about Julian of Norwich from an experience of illness to an experience of temporality is inspiring. Um, and so I wanted to ask, how, how vital is Julian's suffering to her revelations, um, specifically in her, her experience of the passion? Um, and and what, it, what does it mean to focus less on the suffering and more on the temporality? Thank you. Um, and this is Demi and Aiden, who are, are former students. Well, still students here. Yeah, for, for a few more weeks for you. OK. Um, yes, no, this is a wonderful question. And we're talking about the visions of, again, Julian of Norwich, who is, who is a mystic living in an anchoritic cell in late medieval England, um, an Orthodox Christian, but someone who actually very creatively breaks with conventions and experiences a spirituality that seems, seems quite distinctive. Uh, she, she, so your first point about the way in which our consciousness of mortality 
affects how we live our life, right? There's a sense that time consciousness is also consciousness of, of an end, of, of death. And when Julian of Norwich begins the revelations, uh, she actually, she's on her deathbed. Um, she's in this in-between, this liminal experience, and she actually calls for suffering. And, and that's because she wants to feel what Christ's suffering is like. One of the inventive things that Julian does is during her state of suffering, she has a number of visions. And in these vis visions, she's able to cross the boundaries of time. So she actually, in this sort of anachronistic jump, she moves from her present time of late medieval England to the moment of Christ's passion. The, the, the visions show how immediate uh, the image of, of Christ's suffering is. She sees his, his head bleeding, and, and sh she's sort of emotionally responding to this as well. Um, suffering is a, a liminal point to achieve transcendence for, for a lot of medieval writers. Um, we see it in the vision of Drichthaum. Uh, we, see, we see a form of it in Dante when he's kind of alien and, and uh, an exile, lost in the wood. There's a sense that his vision is blurry and, and there's some kind of ailment that leads, that's a suffering that leads him to cross this threshold into the other world. And so I think the suffering is actually crucial, but so is the consciousness of, of, of death, which allows her to experience life differently. Yeah, thank you. This is a change of tack, but specifically about sort of the tension between the uh, liturgical and monastic origins of timekeeping and sort of that rigid structure um, as a way to sort of uh, explore and sort of attempt to uh, uh, achieve um, eternity. Um, um, the the fact that, like like what with like the ringing of bells and the idea of the liturgical day, those demarcations, how sort of a lot of the way that we measure time comes from um, monastic life, where monastic life was so, sort of aimed at exploring uh, uh, godliness and godly eternity and sort of what that tension is yeah. um, in that paradox. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so, so to back up a little bit, I mean, one of the premises of the book is that, and the, the, the first few chapters of the book really focuses on time measurement. And one of the, the differences, I would say, between our time measurement and medieval time measurement is, is they relied on, on many different tools. We, we rely on our calendars and our clocks, largely, right? We're looking at our iPhones and our computers. Um, the medieval person could have tracked time using water clocks, sundials, mechanical clocks, which were only invented between, sometime between 1280 and 1320, um, astrolabes, where they were thinking about planetary time and the zodiac as a way to, to measure time, um, uh, and, and liturgical calendars and canonical hours. So the fact that monks chanted and, and prayed at particular times of day. Now, there were also two kind of systems of time, and one was variable and one was invariable. Mechanical, mechanical clocks helped lead to a standardized sense of time. Uh, 24 hours in the day, and the clock is precise, right? Of course, the early clocks were faulty, <laughs> so they, they, you know, we've, we've perfected them, um, but 
you had that sense of time that was increasingly in the late Middle Ages, especially the 14th century, starting to govern the commercial life of towns and um, and, and then you had, on the other hand, this sort of variable time. When did monks recite their prayers? When was matins and when was vespers, right? These, they're called the canonical hours. Uh, and they were related to the idea that, that the monks lived under a monastic rule. Um, they had a certain structure to their day as well, but it changed because the winter day is shorter than the summer day. Uh, so the, they, might, they might wake up amid darkness. Um, they might start their prayers a little bit later in the winter and, and, and earlier in the summer. Um, this, I think, corresponds to, to laborers who would actually, this is sort of contrary how, to how we think about it. We think of summer as freedom and winter as, I don't know, a time to, to work more. Uh, but they actually would work longer days in the summer because, because of daylight. So to your point, I think it's, it's fascinating that monks cared so much about timekeeping. And actually, a lot of the earliest mechanical clocks came out of monasteries. I think it's a myth to think about uh, you know, clock time as secular and canonical time as, as religious. Um, but the, the canonical hours were recited as a way to commemorate sacred events, right? So every, just like a mass. Um, where you would you would not just pray, but you would kind of resurrect a moment in history. You'd resurrect the moment of of the Last Supper and the Passion, and so with the recitation of of matins, you know, all the hours from matins to vespers, it it was also about kind of bringing the sacred past into the present moment. And in that sense, it is about achieving a kind of transcendence, right? And blurring the distinction between past, present, and future. I, I, I notice how the, the majority of narr narratives on the end, end of time are linear as well as theorized by men. And considering that women of the Middle Ages experienced an embodied nonlinear time or cyclical time, as you write about, um, do you think apocalyptic eschatology or, or any writing on end, end times would look radically different if it had had been or, or or is constructed by women. This is this is a very interesting question. Um, there's a body of writings in the Middle Ages that are eschatolo eschatological, right? They're they're concerned with the end time and they're apocalyptic. And there was a sense that, you know, doom was always about to come. That that the end of time was about to come. That the world was in a state of decay. It's, it's known in Latin as the mundus senescens. It's the senescence of the world, that, the, that this, the primary ages of humankind, according to the Bible, had already passed. And so any minute now, time could end, um, and judgment day could come. So there's this, this, you know, at the same time as there's this really rich world of imagining time, there is there's a concern with, with the end. Um, and, and I think a lot of that is in male-authored writing. You're right. It is, it is Bede and St. Augustine, the church fathers, who are establishing this sense of anxiety, this worry. But it's, it's, it's curious to consider how women would have perceived the end, the end of time in light of, in light of the, 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 the female experience of time in the Middle Ages, um, which isn't as often considered, right? Uh, there was a paradigm of the human life cycle. People didn't really 
keep their keep track of their birthdays in the Middle Ages. I mean, some some people had historical records, like legal records, that would track when they you know broke their ankle or something like that, and it would help them to gauge the passage of of time in in terms of their birthdays. But it wasn't so individualistic, and actually, you would you would you were more likely to kind of conceive of yourself in a particular phase of life. Um, and this is called the ages of man paradigm. So sometimes there were three ages. You, you were either in your childhood or your youth or in old age. Sometimes there, were, there was a paradigm of, of seven ages. Um, and so different authors throughout the Middle Ages you know, implotted the life, the life cycle differently. But, the, but they were always talking about the ages of man and not the ages of woman. I think women's lives were often seen in terms of their marriageability. So you had the, the, the phase of being a virgin, the phase of being a married woman, and the phase of being a widow. Um, and I think in ways this sets up really restrictive experiences for, for women in the Middle Ages. On the other hand, we have a lot of evidence that women were manipulating these, these cycles. So widows, for instance, had a lot of freedom. And we have accounts of London-based widows in the late Middle Ages whose whose husbands died and had businesses, and the women took over their businesses and never remarried and were able to become uh, financially independent. We have women who, were, who became patronesses and were, you know, Clare College in Cambridge was, was you know, created by one, one of these women. And um, so, so I think th there's a way in which the, the female life cycle is actually more like a cycle. Um, women could restart their lives. Even in cases like Marjorie Kemp, there's a 15th century woman, Marjorie Kemp, whose, whose book survives, and um, she gets a lot of attention because she's, she's quite radical in her expressions of spiritual experience. She you know, goes to churches around England on pilgrimage by herself without her husband, and she'll, she'll fall down not just crying, but kind of loudly weeping, and she's accused of heresy at various points. Um, she travels to Rome, she travels to Jerusalem on her own. Uh, but she actually decides, after being pregnant, I think, 14 times, that she's going to live a chaste life. And she tells her husband, actually, that now she's married to Christ and not to him anymore. And, you know, can he, can he live with this? And he, he kind of agrees after some resistance. But she essentially resets her life cycle and becomes, she, she, she says, I'm, I'm now a virgin in a way. This chaste widowhood gave new opportunities for her to explore spiritual life after a life of intensive maternity. Sort of connected to the question that I asked before about the tension between like the ordering of a life that was aimed to explore eternity. I was wondering about um, uh, so, sort of the, 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 um, the tension between a lot of the pagan origins um, and uh, uh, demarcations of time, like the way that like uh, the way that Romans um, demarcated time became the way that Christians demarcated time, and sort of the relationship between that. There's uh, um, with with Dante especially, he talks a lot about the the zodiac, um, and and sort of the way that those which 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 you know obviously was like a branch of science yeah. um, at that period, uh, but 
um, sort of the relationship between uh, the pagan origins of time measurement and its sort of intense relationship with uh, Christian life? Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a great question, and it, it, I, I think, again, leads to a, a debunking of this idea that the Middle Ages is, well, in the middle, but kind of abandoning Latin antiquity for it to be restored by the Renaissance suddenly, right? The, the, this is, there's a much blurrier sense of, of events, and, of course, the medieval people didn't see themselves as medieval as in the middle, um, in the Middle Ages. So there, there's actually a, a, a heritage. There's a continuity between uh, the world of Virgil and, and the, the ancient Roman world and, and the world of the medieval. Um, Ovid is one of the most popular writers in, in the 12th and 13th centuries. But the, this does affect the, the calendar, right? And, and um, I mean, the 24-hour day is, goes back to the Babylonians, but then you're right, the, the idea of the zodiac, it, it's, it's, and, and the, the mythologizing of time comes from antiquity. We see, for instance, uh, in the general prologue to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, um, Chaucer is showing the convergence of multiple systems of timekeeping. He refers to the ram, he's, he's referring to Ares. He's also one that aprio with his shortest sota, the draught of March hath perished to the rota. He's, he's showing how April is, is restoring the world after, after March and the rain is coming in and, and, and there's renewal. He, he alludes to Zephyrus and I mean, we, we, we talked a little bit this, about this in, in um, my class on Milton today with my first years, but um, he, he cites Zephyrus as the west wind breathing life into the landscape. And, and this, this kind of cosmic sense of different temporal movers converging leads then or pricks the hearts of of Londoners who then go on pilgrimage. Right? So, and then, so you have the, the, the shift to a kind of spiritual time and the idea of pilgrimage as, as a journey to, uh, to a cathedral, to visit the, the shrine of St. Thomas Becket, to visit the, the healing powers of, of relics, um, but also the journey of the soul, right? moving, moving from time toward God. Uh, that doesn't quite answer your question about the, the logistics of kind of how the calendar was created. I think the, the zodiac is one of them. Um, there's a focus in medieval calendars on the labors of the month. So there was a sense that every month was associated with a different occupation. So you would kind of harvest grapes for wine in September. Um, February was actually not a time to work. It was a time to kind of rest by the fire. Uh, but, but, but you had kind of multiple ways of imagining the passage of time in a single year. Um, the calendar is dual, right? It's you're progressing through time in a linear way as you move from you know, January to December, but it's also repeating itself. So it's also, it's also a cycle. And medieval people seem to be conscious of that, that duality and the seeming, the seeming paradox, but also the, the beauty of, of that, of, of um, a repeatable cycle, right, in nature. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about time, timekeeping and it's been brought up that um, timekeeping is, is a cultivation of urgency. Um, and you write about um, how 
mechanical clocks for monks were, were a method of um, rout, rousing them to prayer. Um, and, and similarly, um, Julian of Norwich writes, she, she uses the word suddenly a lot, that there's this suddenness, and I, th I think that, that connects to, um, to the urgency um, within, within monastic communities because of the timekeeping. Um, and, and, and yet, the monastic rhythm seems to be such a peaceful way of life, or at least that, that, that is how I have experienced it. And um, I, w I would love to hear your thoughts on how liturgical time and monastic time cultivates urgency without interrupting peace or, or creates a rhythm of life that um, cultivates peace without instilling passivity. Yeah, that's a great question. And relevant to us because we're, we're all kind of keeping our schedules, but also we don't want to feel rushed all the time. And um, I think one of the, the questions that we had when we were, we were putting together the chapters in this book was, uh, are we masters of time or are we mastered by time? Mm -hmm. And are we using our schedules to gain control of our day and our mm -hmm. month and a, our year? Or is this obsession with timekeeping actually controlling us. Right. And it, it's relevant to the question you pose and to monastic experience. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting, it seems like a paradox, but monks followed rules. There was the regula, but the rule wasn't meant to inhibit freedom. Um, it was actually meant to help gain freedom in a way. Uh, sometimes we associate with freedom with the ability to do anything we want, everything we want. Um, no rules, no morals, <laughs> no ethics, and, and uh, we kind of look down on rules. But, it, but actually, in, in monasteries, it's seen the opposite way, that when you have rules, you can start to live a stronger, more ethical life. Um, and one where you have that kind of interior freedom. So keeping track of time was part of that. It was also, and I think this, this goes back to Mustafa's point earlier, time, keeping track of time was linked to the cultivation of virtue. Um, temperance, for instance, was one of the cardinal virtues. And the cardinal virtues actually were inherited from the, the Romans. Um, and, and temperance was often personified as a lady who wore a clock on her head and who was, who was keeping track of the minutes. And it wasn't, again, this kind of obsessive timekeeping as a way to get things done, but it was about you know, avoiding idleness, avoiding sloth. Sloth wasn't just laziness, it was, it was a it was a resignation to life where you, you kind of give up, it's, it's a, com a complacency, a spiritual complacency, and that's why it was so dangerous to monastic life. Um, so, you know, Chaucer wrote, uh, one of the Canterbury Tales is told by the second nun, who's one of the, the religious characters on the pilgrimage. I mean, they're all religious in the sense that they go on pilgrimage, but not all of them are ethical. The monk, for instance, he, you know, he doesn't want to spend time in the cloister. He wants to go hunting, and he's riding. He's, he's riding a beautiful horse with greyhounds by his side, and he's enjoying, you know, eating swans, for instance. 
Um, the second nun tells a tale where she's, she's concerned about idleness and uh, wants to kind of keep time, and, and, and she's, she, she goes into the story of, of the life of Saint Cecilia. Um, so there's a, there's a connection between a kind of holy life, the pursuit of a holy life, and timekeeping, which again seems seems interesting in light of your point, Aidan, about transcendence and the fact that um, the the contemplative life, the, the the monastic kind of move away from time, is the goal, right? So how is it that this precise keeping of time and these stages of a holy life? then leads to a complete abandonment of temporality. So thanks everybody for being here. This concludes this episode of the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. If you'd like more from the SLC Library Podcast, then go back and listen to one of my other chats with staff, students, and faculty to tide you over until next week. Actually, now that I mention it, next week will be the last episode of the season. It will be on, let me look at a calendar right now, maybe I can get it up in time. If I just keep talking, it'll happen, and it's happening. It is the 12th. <laughs> okay, so the 12th, I believe, is the graduation, May 12th. Uh, so that's going to be the last. It's a, it's a Friday. It works out to be a Friday. So that's going to be the last episode of the podcast. Uh, you're listening to this most likely on the 5th of May, Friday, May 5th, is when this podcast will have gone out. Uh, so yeah, two, oh, just one more, one more episode before the end of the semester, and we go on hiatus for the summer. We'll be back in the fall for sure, but during the summer it'll be a hiatus. I'll get, I'll you know, s- ruminate on some ideas I have for the podcast, try to get new guests lined up, and it's going to be a great process. So thank you for joining us, and I want to thank all the faculty who have been a part of the faculty spotlights. That's Margarita, Victoria. Uh, Roy and Jillian, you've made you've made really special episodes here, uh, gracing us with your presence and your thoughts and your ideas and your work, and it's been a great. It's been intellectually stimulating for me. I've had to think of questions that will hopefully be interesting to you and stimulating your imagination, and it's been a really enjoyable process. And and to the crowds, to the people who came, the people who came, more and more people kept coming. Uh, we went in a positive direction over the course of the of the past several months of more and more people showing up and it was just very cool to see us like have an actual audience and for you to be as engaged as you were lots of laughter in this uh, this episode in this uh, discussion which was really nice to see the people were really engaged and enjoying it so thank you all to the faculty and to the people who showed up and made these faculty spotlights so special. Oh, and come, for no other reason, come check out the room where this faculty spotlight takes place. It's in what's called the reading room of the library, and we have some lights. Mustafa and I, the director, worked on this uh, display, this exhibit, if you will, uh, really hard, and it was all Mustafa's vision, uh, and I assisted, and what we came up with I think is actually quite beautiful. So come check it out. It uh, tells a story in light. So if that interests you, come check it out. Go to the reading room of the library. 
All right, everyone. Wait, I gotta, I gotta run, take care of some business here. I, I gotta tell you to remember to give us a five star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are really important and mean a lot to us. Follow us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And visit the library website where you can check your library account, reserve a study room, or book a consultation with one of our research librarians at sarahlawrence.edu slash library. The Sarah Lawrence Student Life Preservation Project is accepting contributions. Visit slcstudentlifeproject.omica.net for more information. Don't worry, that URL will be in the show notes of this episode. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. Our music for this season is by Owen Anderson, a student of Sarah Lawrence College. Thank you very much, Owen. Your sound has been... It's the glue that holds it all together. So thank you very much for your music. It's it's a, it's really cool that we have music from an SLC student uh, playing in the intro and outro. And thank you for sharing your time with us. We look forward to doing it again one more time next week. <laughs>